It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Earlier this week, I spoke with Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, two DEA special agents tasked with a mission of taking down infamous drug lord Pablo Escobar and his deadly Medellin cartel. During our last episode, Javier and Steve shared how the Drug Enforcement Administration partnered with the Colombian National Police to track down Escobar. Javier Pena was awarded Colombia's highest award given to a non-citizen for his investigation into Escobar, as well as other awards from the DEA and international communities. After his work in Colombia, Javier would later be promoted to the Senior Executive Service and served as the special agent in charge of three major divisions, delivering leadership and guidance on other organized crime operations. In 2010, the U.S. government honored him with the Presidential Rank Award for his notable career in the Senior Executive Service. Steve Murphy's career with the DEA began after his work as a police officer in West Virginia. With the DEA, Steve worked in various locations, such as Miami, Florida, Greensboro, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and Bogota, Colombia. During his career, Steve was promoted to senior executive service ranks and later served as special agent in charge, director at the Department of Justice's Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force Fusion Center until his retirement in 2013. For his illustrious career, Steve has been awarded many honors, including the DEA Special Agent of the Year Award, the International Award of Honor from the International Narcotic Enforcement Officers Association, and the Distinguished Service Cross from the Republic of Colombia. If you haven't already, go back and give the episode a listen for the harrowing details of the investigation up to this point. Today, Javier and Steve join me once again to discuss how they finally managed to bring down the murderous kingpin once and for all. You've described in detail how outrageous and what an affront it was to law enforcement to have this surrender um, uh, uh, orchestrated essentially by the government. Although to your point, Steve, you know, you're, to save lives, perhaps that was the best decision to make. And Pablo was put in a, quote, prison that was an absolute country club. He had plans afterward. It was determined that he was going to turn it eventually into a resort. So this guy was living off of the government's dime now, still making millions of dollars, still uh, extracting exorbitant fees from other drug dealers and and living there like a hog on the land in in the cathedral. And then he escaped. And I want to set the scene as well for listeners, because When Pablo escaped, it was under, as you described, Javier, it was after an incredible firefight. It was after he perceived the government coming in. He had beaten to death one of his sicarios and ordered the murder in that moment of another. Then the government moves in. A tremendous firefight or a lot of lives were lost. And then he escaped. So essentially, the bear is poked. And now the the lion, the self-perceived lion, is awakened. So between his escape, on July 22nd, 1992, and mid-March 1993, less than six months, 136 police officers were killed by his hitmen. 
29,000 people were killed that year, up from 25,000 the year before. Car bombs in Medellin and Bogota killed over 112 and wounded over 400. And not to give it away, but when he after he died, murders dropped 80% overnight. So it's it seemed like he was this this switch operator where upon his leveling the switch all of a sudden there was the the magnitude of death and destru- destruction could just never be overstated and upon his press for peace or removal all of a sudden peace was restored. So Steve can you however speak to now we're entering into the part of the story where he's now escaped and you two are back on law enforcement is now resurrected to find Pablo Escobar. Tell us what happened next. Well, we were tasked with uh, bringing in the U.S. assets available, you know, anything that we could come up with to assist the Colombian National Police. It was the highest priority investigation that DEA had worldwide. Uh, It was a high priority for the FBI as well. We got along very well with the the two FBI agents assigned in Bogota there. Um, Not that we were, we really didn't have a lot of crossover, but occasionally we would get intelligence that applied to what their responsibilities were. And we'd provide that to them. And then uh, everybody in the embassy knew if anything came in to, about Escobar, they were to contact Javier and I direct to pass it along. So it was a great working relationship with them. Uh, the CIA was, honestly, we got along with the worker bees at the CIA. That's just the guy that was the chief of station at the time, who's the boss for the CIA, uh, just didn't like us, especially Javier. Uh, it was silly what was going on. And when we don't work together, who wins the bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we had the, the Delta force. We had seal team six with us. Uh, we had a wiretap run running up there. Um, we had bounties placed on our heads by Pablo Escobar. We were, the bounty on each of us was $300,000. Uh, and was actually on any DE agent in Colombia. The, the death of a DE agent was worth $300,000. And, um, that's when we do our speaking events, you know, we always have a Q and a at the end and, and sometimes that topic will come out and, and people will ask us what we thought about that. And, um, you, I mean, you can probably tell we don't take ourselves too serious sometimes. And what I tell everybody is the biggest threat I faced from that $300 bounty was that my wife would kill me in my sleep because I was worth more <laughs> dead than I was alive. <laughs> stuff, girl, you got to remember, right? <laughs> um, but the uh, the intelligence sharing was phenomenal. The we had priority, and and one thing that, that Javier and I also like to bring out is we get a cre- we get the credit for all this. The, every agent in Bogota at the time, every intelligence analyst, which you know the, the intel analysts are our brains, um, they were all standing ready to do anything they could to assist. Law enforcement worldwide was kind of at our beck and call. There was an enforcement group in Miami that uh, Gary Wade was the boss of, a, a retired DEA agent now, that he was our response group. We could call Derek Gary at 2 o'clock in the morning. He'd have his troops out on the street at 3 o'clock. It was just the law enforcement response worldwide was phenomenal because everybody wanted this, this guy. started calling him something else there. I'm sorry. We wanted this guy off the street. You know, everybody wanted him down either in a prison or in, a, in the cemetery. Um, Javier and I were not allowed to leave country at the same time. One of us always had to be there. We eventually got to the point where we would take turns. So if Javier was in Medellin for a week or two, I'd be back in Bogota at the embassy and vice versa. We'd trade out back and forth like that. Um, it was exciting there at first, probably at about the 12 month mark, uh, we weren't getting a lot of information and it's, um, 
I guess a nice, I guess the way to say it is we started feeling sorry for ourselves. It's like, you know, why don't they just let this guy surrender again? Let's get this crap over with. We can go home. My wife's in Bogota by herself. Javier hasn't been back to the United States in forever to visit his family. Um, and then, you know, what happened is you'd see one of your friends get killed in the line of duty and you know, it would bring clarity back to get back focused on your mission. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. It's not about you. Um, and so that's how we kind of maintained our, our mental attitude to keep going. Um, and then towards the, uh, I guess maybe the 16th month or so, maybe the 15th month, we started getting tips in. We established a 1-800 tip line there at the base. So citizen, citizens in Columbia could call in information. They didn't want to speak to the Colombian police. They, you know, always feared corruption. So they wanted to speak to one of the gringos, which was Javier and I. And, I mean, you can hear my accent. Me speaking Spanish is uh, um, can be exciting. <laughs> it doesn't sound like Javier Spanish, I'll tell you that. But um, most of the leads that came in were bad. You know, it's it's either people just there was a uh, the U.S. government offered a five million dollar reward for Pablo's for information leading to Pablo's capture or death. Uh, a lot of people wanted to collect the reward. Some was uh, his Sicarios calling in to just plant false leads. Some was uh, people want to take out competition. Um, and I think, I think Javier says it best when he talks about the leads coming. If 10 leads came in, you might get two. You know, maybe one out of every five might be actionable intelligence. And, and, and we might even be in a little gracious at giving in that much. Uh, and these are just the, the various responsibilities you had. We wanted to get out in the field and be out there with the cops. I mean, it's, I know it's, it sounds silly. I'm, you know, I come from an English Irish background. I'm, I'm about as white as you get. I'm six foot two. I have light colored eyes. I used to have hair, brown hair. Uh, I'm light skin. I stick out in a Hispanic country. I don't, I don't blend in at all. And, you know, you're going on these helicopter gunships and you're, Sometimes you might be taking round as you're, you know, rounds as you're coming in for a landing. Um, people think I'm crazy, but it was one of the most exciting times of my life. It, it was, I, I don't know how to explain it. It was, it was exciting. It was an adrenaline rush. There's times when Javier and I would sit around, around having a cold beer and talk about, man, do you realize we're the only two guys in the entire world doing this, you know, as DE agents? So it was uh, not to build your ego up, but it was just such an exciting time to, to be involved in stuff like that. And um, we don't claim to be heroes. It's we've never we're not tough guys. It's just uh, the good Lord gave us the capabilities to deal with certain things. And this was one of them that we could deal with. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And Javier, can you describe for us during this chapter, you know, you had your respective apartments and then, but describe that the compound that you would spend your, your time with the CNP compound that Martinez's family lived in and the like, can you describe that for listeners and what that, what yeah. that was like it, with we, the CNP? We, right. And for people that are Colombia or from, you know, the Medellin, beautiful city, it was a Carlos Holguin police school. It was a, an academy for basic police officers. So uh, it was, we shared a room, I think, with about eight or 10 other people. There was, you know, no, no hot water. We ate there. It was always a little white rice, a potato, and one little piece of chicken. So it was like the menu wasn't that good. Uh, but 
it, you know, but by us being there is what really turned everything around because of that intel. So, and we said we were not in operations. We broke policies, rules. We we tell people we never broke the law, but we were we went out on them. And you know what? The best compliment I got was one of the cops says, "Here." Man, he says, we were sitting out there, and he says, you and Steve come out with us every day. Uh, what about those other guys that don't come out with us? I mean, that to me was, you know, like the CIA, they weren't, you know. So we were trusted, and that's what elevated our our, our trust uh, with them. And also at, at the beginning, if I could mention, a lot of police officers from Medellin, when we started the search, were corrupt. And you know how they got corrupted? Because they were from Medellin. We never realized. So Pablo got to their families and said, all right, hey, if you're a kid, mother and father, if your son, daughter doesn't call me, I'm going to kill your son, daughter, then I'm going to go after killing you all. So we started getting a lot of, uh, like I said, a, a lot of operations getting ruined. You know, hey, we have him. He's right here. Because at the beginning, we had him located many times. But then... They, they'd have a warning. The police officer would call. They would warn Pablo Escobar. So our strategy was just to bring in people that were not from Medellin, and that's what uh, what helped us. Uh, but, uh, you know, that corruption was when we got rid of it. And the guys we knew that we worked with hated Pablo Escobar because why? The police officers, the friends, our friends that Pablo Escobar were killed. So a lot of those guys wanted to, you know, uh, see Pablo Escobar dead. You know, and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. Ours, Colonel Martinez told Steve and I, you know what, guys? He says, we're not here to arrest. We're not here to seize money, seize dope. We're not here to arrest Pablo Escobar. Our mission is to kill him. Mm. And I say it because it was that revenge factor. If you met all your friends, police officers, and then again, the innocent citizens, that always stuck to me, being at the, at the wrong time, at the wrong place, at the car bonds, just to make a point. So it was a personal war from the Colombian National Police, and that's why I said they're the heroes, nobody else. They're the ones who took uh, their country back. You were mentioning the leads that you fielded and the um, pretty high, frankly, rate of maybe 20% actionable one story that stuck out to me in terms of the logistics you were managing, in addition to the accuracy, was a lead that came through and the woman who called the tip line, who, who requested to speak with a gringo, she had to travel, if I remember correctly, to a payphone so that the lead was was right, that the, the intelligence was correct, but you just simply got there too late. Can you share that story? Yes. In this informant was based out of the United States. This informant was right on the money. And this informant was in a location where Pablo Escobar's family members uh, were and Pablo Escobar used to visit. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I had a lot of hopes for this informant. That day, he or she called. I'll always remember, but that person could not get to a phone. So it took a while. So we mounted up the operation. We got the location. And when we hit the finca, the ranch, wow, she was right. He, she was right on the money as far as Pablo Escobar had been there. The warehouse we hit was full of Escobar's personal memorabilia. He had posters, photos of himself. A lot of that, that first wanted poster 
that came from that warehouse, the picture. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a trove of great intelligence information that we used, uh, that informant, like I said, we, we missed Pablo Escobar. He had barely left, but that, that informant was right on the money. Pablo Escobar had been there, but the warehouse gave us just a lot of photos, posters that you would see of Pablo Escobar nowadays that came from that warehouse. So he was hiding them there and he had been there. Part of what I found, again, just as a reader of, of, both of your remarkable story about this is sort of the poetry of Colonel Martinez and his son um, and his son's expertise with radio frequency and how that is ultimately what enabled the capture and killing of Pablo Escobar. Can one of you describe that incredibly special relationship and father-son duo that was instrumental in the search and then capture and murder of Pablo Escobar? Killing, not murder. Well, um, so uh, Lieutenant Martinez, now this is Lieutenant Hugo Martinez and Colonel Hugo Martinez, so he's a junior. He self-taught himself how to use that equipment. He didn't go to any classes or anything like that. He was an intelligent young man, and he learned how to use radio directional finding equipment. Now, uh, the government of France had donated several vans to the government of Colombia that contained these uh, radio directional finding equipment, and the, the principle that was used with this equipment was triangulation. So if you had three vans out around the city on high points and they would shoot their signal out, where those three signals would intersect, that's where Pablo's radio telephone was emanating from. Okay. The problem was the margin of error was very large back then. And so to refine that margin of error, and plus Pablo was using it in taxi cabs. We didn't know it at the time. We found this when, we, when the Columbia National Police raided his row house the place where he was killed that day, there was a taxi cab parked in the garage. So uh, the way you refine the, that margin of error is you have to take these handheld antennas and you drive down the street. And the way that you use these antennas is you have to hold it out the window and you've got a little meter in your hand, you know, and you're looking at the strength of the signal and you have to have a driver and so forth. Well, on December 2nd, 1993, that's what happened. So Pablo was talking to his son, Juan Pablo, and, and, they both know they can't stay on the phone too long. And Juan Pablo even continually brings that out to his dad. Dad, you've been on the phone too long. We've got to hang up. We've got to hang up. They're going to pinpoint you. And he was in a stationary location. He wasn't on the move that day. So these are the mistakes he made. Well, as, as Lieutenant Martinez is driving down that street that day, holding the antenna out, he says he looks up, you know, his, his meter's telling him to look to the left. He looks to the left and he sees Pablo Escobar in a second story window, looking out, talking on the phone. Now, if you saw, if you're standing in a second floor window looking out the window and you saw somebody riding down the street holding an antenna out, that would probably raise the alarm, right? I mean, that's not something you see every day. That's, that's very suspicious. But Lieutenant Mar we went back and talked to Lieutenant Martinez. He said Pablo didn't react at all. And we went back and listened to the tape recordings of his conversation at that time. And it wasn't something like he's talking to his son. He's like, all right, son, listen, that's what, oh, crap, what is that? There was nothing like there was no aha moment in that conversation. He just continued his conversation. And the only explanation we've ever come up with is that, you know, as we're talking to you now, we're reliving events in our minds. And I'm not seeing things that are directly in front of me because I'm seeing what's in my mind. And the only explanation we've got is that that was what was going on with Pablo. He was so focused on his conversation with his son, telling him what he wanted him to do. He wanted him to call the president's office. He wanted to call members of Congress. He wanted to call the press and get his message out there that he didn't realize what he was looking at. Now, the, the Dehean unit, the guys we worked with, they were out that day in the general area. 
And actually, Lieutenant Martinez had had pinpointed a location earlier that day that turned out to be false. Now, they hit a warehouse. It was an empty warehouse. But to his credit, he he went around and started looking at the area, and he found a body of water. And, and water will will alter the way radio waves pass through the air. So he recalibrated his equipment, and then that's how he found Pablo. So the Dean guys, they go in, and, and uh, they radio in. Now, I'm, I'm in the room with, I told you earlier, I was in the room with all the American operators. I, and there's a quad area, you know, and it's the, the executive offices, the other offices, and our officers' quarters, which, I mean, I mean Javier told you how <laughs> it wasn't like living at the Ritz, I'll tell you that. Yeah. It wasn't um, El Catardal. <laughs> not yeah. at all. Not at a good point. Yeah, that's a good comparison. <laughs> So I saw the I saw Colonel Martinez executive staff, his lieutenant colonels and his majors, you know, hurrying over to his office. And I told the operators, I said, something's going on. I'll be right back. So I went over to Colonel Martinez's office. And and this was the relationship we enjoyed with the colonel. He saw me uh, down there. Those guys couldn't say Steve. It came out as Steak. So my nickname was Stick. You know, I'm a lot of things. <laughs> I'm not a stick. Um, so uh, as I come to the door, you know, Colonel Martinez looks at me, sees me and he's like, Steak, Steak, come on in. And he's on his walkie-talkie, and he's talking to uh, his son, and he's talking to the major of the Dehean unit. And they're reporting what they're seeing, and they think they have Pablo surrounded. And, and Colonel Martinez is telling him, listen, hold your position. Don't let him get away. We're, gonna, we're on our way, meaning we're going to load up 600 troops to come out and back you up because that's how many personnel we had in the search block. Think about that for a second. You know, that's not something you do in two or three minutes. The, they've got to get everybody in, in formation. They've got to issue weapons. They've got to issue assignments. They've got to get the trucks out and the Jeeps and all that stuff. I mean, it takes a while to load up 600 people. But the, the main thing was Colonel Martinez said, don't lose him. Well, as we know now, the, the Dehean unit sent two guys around back. Now, these are row houses. Pablo's row house is a three-story. Behind him is a two-story row house. Okay? And, they, and, then, and the back walls touch each other. So... The two guys go around back. I think it was six or eight Dehean units. They hit the front door. Uh, I think they used debt cord to blow the front door off the hinges and made entry. And now that first level is a combination garage, kitchen, and there was a bathroom and storage area in the back. And then you go up the first flight of steps to the second floor, and that's like your living room, dining room, family room combination. And then you go up to the third floor, and that's where the bedrooms were. They come in. They, they search the first floor real quick, see there's nobody there. They make their way up to the second floor. Now, uh, as we've been told, you know, Pablo and his, his single bodyguard, only one Sicario left protecting Pablo. This is a guy who at one point had as many as, as, many as 500 Sicarios protecting him. On December 2nd, 1993, had one left, and his nickname is Limon, Lemon. So Lemon and Pablo, they take off to the third floor. As the good guys come up to the second floor, they see Pablo up on the on the landing at the third floor. One of our Dehean buddies uh, was going to start advancing up the steps, and he tripped and fell just as Pablo shot at him, and a bullet went over his head. It's the only thing that saved mm. his life. Lemon gets up to – there's a window up there at the landing, and he jumps out the window onto the roof of that two-story row house behind him. Um, he starts making his way over. He's going to climb down and escape. Well, the, the two cops on the ground order him to stop. He engages them in a gun battle. They shoot him, kill him. He falls off the roof. Pablo gets up to that third floor window. Now, he's heard the gunshots outside. He knows what's coming behind him, so he's trapped. So he jumps out that window. He wants to try to move along the wall so that the guys on the ground can't see him. But any second, 
you know, the good guys are going to come up to that third floor window and he's going to be a sitting duck. So he makes our, our assumption is he makes a dash across the roof to try to get away. He's barefoot. And these are those ceramic tile roofs, you know, which when you break those ceramic tiles, they cut your feet. As he's trying to make his little getaway there, the cops order him to stop. He's got two nine millimeter pistols. He starts shooting at the cops in the window. All hell breaks loose from the window and from the ground. They catch him in a crossfire. Pablo's hit three times, once in the back of the leg and once in the butt cheek. Those were what we call knockdown shots, but neither one of them was a kill shot. The third shot that hit Pablo went in through his right ear. And uh, obviously that was the kill shot. Um, and he fell dead right there. Now, when I got out there, I rode out with Colonel Martinez in his Jeep and his security detail. This massive gun battle has just taken place. And rumors are starting to fly around the neighborhood because they're seeing all the cops. You know, oh, they think I, we think they got Pablo. So now thousands of people are coming out. I mean, they're like little rats coming out to watch what's going on. And it was... Uh, you know, we're bringing 600 guys out, but then the Colombian military comes out also with their troops to help out. Um, I, Colonel Martinez gets me in the house. It, it, it turns out I have the only camera that works that day. I used to carry a camera everywhere we went because, you you know, just to document things. And uh, so with all the pictures that were taken that day, I took the pictures. We shared them with Columbia National Police, and then um, people have posted them online. Like I say, we don't post that kind of stuff online, but people do. Um, and there's one particular picture that that I've caught some grief about over the years the the Dehean unit guys wanted their picture taken with Pablo's body and I got to tell you it was an exciting time I mean it felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off your shoulders that Pablo Escobar is finally dead um, I'm down on the roof now with the guys and where the body's located and taking their pictures and just taking pictures of Pablo's weapons and you know just everything that's associated with it and they're like steak steak come and get your picture so I went and got a picture with some of the cops and, and when that hit Washington, that, you know, I, I got a little grief over that from, from headquarters because, the, you know, Washington wasn't real happy that there's a DEA agent standing over the body of Pablo Escobar and, and I might have a little grin on my face. I'm not proud of the picture, to be honest with you. It, uh, I think it's a perfect example, though, to show you what we had been through and what it felt like when it was over. Um, and it's kind of paid off in the long run because this is the eighth year of our worldwide speaking tour. So, <laughs> you know, and we show that picture to every audience we speak to. We don't shy away. We don't pretend to be something we're not. We tell the honest to God's truth. Everything you hear from us in the show is 100% truth. It's what really happened. It's not what other people have created in, in Narcos. And believe me, we love the Narcos series on Netflix. They did a fantastic job. But everything in the series is not true because it's, you know, I'll give you an example. They show Javier and I arguing and shoving each other and getting in a fist fight in the embassy. We've never even had a disagreement. <laughs> they show us before, before any line, this, the first thing the actors do is light a cigarette. Neither one of us smokes cigarettes. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's funny the way that, you know, the, the twist that Hollywood puts on everything. But anyway, so we're back the, on the roof there and eventually Pablo's mother and his sister show up. And my job is to confirm it's Pablo. And everything I'm seeing is indicative that, yes, this is Pablo Escobar. Eventually, his sister makes her way over to some Colombian police officers that are standing around Lamone's body. Then he's the bodyguard that fell off the roof. And she said, I want to see my brother. And she is very uh, forceful, very forward when she speaks and very disrespectful. 
And so when she saw that it wasn't Pablo, she started laughing at the police, told them how inept they were, how they'd killed the wrong man again, that they were useless. They didn't know how to do their job. And, and they just kind of let her go for a while. And then, and, you know, after a couple of minutes, they told her, Hey, look up on the roof and see what you see. And when they brought Pablo's body off that roof and I saw her family, I saw his family's reaction for me, that sealed it a hundred percent. That's Pablo Escobar. When your mom and your sister start screaming and wailing and so forth, that's pretty good proof that that's their, their son and their, their uh, brother. We'll be right back with more of this story. It painted such an interesting picture to me reading about through your words, both of you, the Colonel Martinez and his son, Lieutenant Martinez, you know, Colonel Martinez headed up the search block and his son, Lieutenant Martinez was responsible for that entire triangulation that ultimately led to the capture, of course, along with the support of all that actionable intelligence. And on the other side was Pablo himself and his son, Juan Pablo, who, while Pablo was on the lam, his 17-year-old son was in charge, essentially, of the cartel, was executing on his father's orders. And in turn, the the murders and the exacting fees and the like, it, it really was an interesting parallel of the father and son on both sides, one for good, one for evil. You mentioned the the weight off the shoulders, the jubilation, and Javier, some of the headlines that you both spoke about, Alfin Cayo, finally he's dead. Finally he's fallen. Immortal joy, Colombia between delirium and relief. What was it like? How can you describe the days, the moments following the killing of Pablo Escobar? Yeah, and you are right. Alfin Cayo, we have it was uh, they write a special newspaper edition. Mm-hmm. El Tiempo was a leading paper for that afternoon, and it's a it's a great shot. Pablo at the morgue, the body, the his mother sort of looking over him, crossing her heart, and it's like she said, Pablo, and uh, confirmed Alfin Cayo finally came down. You know what? And I wasn't there that day. I'm glad Steve was there. And, and you know what? I felt. I wish I would have been there, but the ambassador had sent me to check out a lead. It was an old informant of mine, how he got a hold of the ambassador, and I tried to argue with the ambassador. Sir, we're on him. We've located him. We're going to be closed. So I had to fly to Miami under the ambassador's order, or if not, I would have been kicked out of the country. So uh, anyway, the irony with me is the the informant, we call him Navigante, was the one who led the operation on Jose Rodriguez Gacha, el Mexicano. So he was in hiding. We had him. And, and it's uh, uh, Navigante. He's on the phone when I see him. And he says, I'm here. He just killed Pablo Escobar. I didn't even talk to the informant. I got on the plane back, and all the news media people who were already on board that American airline flight came back, went by the next day. But it was, like I said, I was very, very happy, and more happy for uh, Colonel Martinez because they had suffered a lot. General Octavio Vargas Silva, he's the main general who never gave up, and you know what? He never got the credit. So I'm giving him the credit. We saw it firsthand. He's the one who organized the search block. He never gave up. He, he lost a lot of police officers, but 
it, it was that weight of the world of going after Pablo Escobar. Like Steve mentioned, there were times where we just say, you know what, let him surrender. You know, people are getting killed. Let's just all go home. It's not worth it. Let him surrender one more time. I'm glad we never gave up. Uh, but and also all the innocent people. If you look at the Avianca airline, 107 innocent people at the DOS building, uh, Luis Carlos Galan. I mean, and all the innocent bystanders that Pablo Escobar killed. And my question is, why? And he was happy that he would kill innocent people, and it was just to change the tide against Colombia. And that's what really uh, made it happen. So his demise, I'm glad it happened. I wish it were done earlier. Um, I hope... Uh, you know, and, and, you know, some of the great police officers that worked this case were, were killed by Pablo Escobar. So there was that revenge. And, and it was it was that revenge was it, it was a great feeling because, like I said, Pablo Escobar was out of control and he had the money of the world. Money to him was not a problem. We estimated his wealth at 30 billion dollars. 80% of the cocaine Pablo was sending out, uh, he was responsible. 80% of the cocaine. The prices, and we mentioned, everybody's seen the movie uh, um, with uh, Al Pacino. Uh, Scarface. Scarface. Uh, Scarface, yeah. <laughs> Scarface. That was about perfect. Uh, uh, that was what's going on at that time. You know, the money, the killings out of control. Uh, so, like I said, Empire had, you know, it, it, Pablo. Esquire had that $30 billion of assets he had. So how are you going to stop that, a person like that? And then, like I said, with a violence. So it, it, it was a great moment the day he got killed. And, again, we preface it by saying the heroes were the Colombian National Police, Colonel Hugo Martinez, his son. It's a great story because it's a good father-son team going against who? An evil father and son team. Yep. And, you know, Pablo Escobar was trying to negotiate another surrender, like, you know, like the one he had before where he screwed it up. And what does it mean? You know, I, it, it's, I couldn't help but be struck by the fact that, you know, you opened your book talking about the Gulf cartel and the violence and drug smuggling that they were engaged in. And in this current time, you know, the State Department, because of the Gulf cartel, has issued a travel warning against the country of of Mexico at the time because your your book details the entire war on drugs, obviously, and um, you know that over twenty years later, essentially, that the violence is still there. That, as you mentioned earlier, um, Javier, that the Cali cartel sort of there was a a small moment of calm, and then the Cali cartel reared its head. They learned from Pablo's Wild West mistakes and became sort of a sort of a surgical cartel, if you will. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly. We took down the Medellin cartel and Cali was learning. They were seen and they did everything the opposite. Pablo was wild, wild west. Cali was more business oriented. So they grew in abundance. They were the major cartel. You know. So then we take them out. The North Valley cartel uh, gets into play. The, Basically, the the story, what we're trying to say is cartels, we need to go after them. But what's going to happen? Another cartel is going to be born. You look at the Mexico situation. Mexico situation right now is it, out of control. And I, I wish they would have issued a, a warning earlier. You know, we tell people, I, I'm from the border. I don't cross into Mexico. Uh, it's The problem with Mexico is that corruption 
is out of control. The violence is is out of control. They'll pay off whoever. They don't care who who dies as long as they're they're sending their dope across. This cartels, they're terrorist organizations, and uh, we just saw what happened in Matamoros here, right mm-hmm. last uh, last week with those tourists going down for a medical uh, situation, uh, and. You know what? I'm going to say there was a great trial that people need to see. It was about a month ago. A guy named Genaro Garcia Luna, head of the federal police of for a long time. And if you look at that trial, if you look at all the corruption that took place, it, it is how do you combat this making multi-million dollars right now? And the cartels right now will show you as far as the violence. They're not afraid to show people hanging from bridges, heads, throwing them. That's what they're going to do. So uh, the difference, and I'm going to say it, between Colombia at that time, they requested us. They requested us to be there where Mexico is not requesting us. I think Mexico, I'm going to say it, probably is trying to shut the door down uh, on uh, on law enforcement right now. And always remember, this is a world problem. It's not just a, a country problem. And you know what? And what's the solution? We believe in education. Their program was taken away. We love the their program. If you talk to kids, start off at an early age with education. It was it was a great program. I, I said I don't know what the solution is, but part of the solution is you cannot back down from the cartels. You got to go after them, take the fight to them. Countries have to collaborate with one another in, in education. Start off with our kids at a younger age uh, in school. Tell them about the dangers of, of drugs out there. Right. That that was a fascinating component as well of your story, the geopolitics that played a part in this long war on drugs as as you both walked us through the 80s and the 90s and moving forward. So, Steve, I believe you you were discussing um, the president, Reagan, no, at the time. Oh, yeah, well, but the, the U.S. president, the, the one that scuttled Raul Castro's indictment, all of a sudden you were told to stand down. Contrast that, you know, President Nixon's close involvement with the war on drugs, of course, H.W. Bush committing vast amounts of resources, military and funding, um, sort of culminating at the end with Clinton's phone call with the Colombian president. It was a really fascinating, um, you know, just the the impact that the United States president has in your not your your roles personally as well as the larger war on drugs to that point it's it's been an ongoing multi administration multi decade uh, effort or very complex complicated relationship as it seems to inter- interface with law enforcement. It is. And there was one other instance where Javier and I were ready to indict the president of Haiti, Jean Bertrand Aristide. Um, and as we were at grand jury in Miami, you get a phone call through the chain of command that the white house says, stand down. And that's when Clinton was, uh, and we're, we're apolitical, you know, I mean, we have our own personal ideas and thoughts and, and favoritism, but, uh, both sides of the party, uh, both sides of the aisle have contributed to this because think about it. We declared a war on drugs. Well, when you declare a war, you go into win, right? You, you get all your, allies together, you get your materials, you get your soldiers together. And when you go in, you go in in force and you go in with attitude that we're going to take over, we're going to win. Well, we're, we're going up against the world's first narco terrorist, a man who's responsible for 80% of the world's cocaine in this war on drugs. And what we do, we sent two guys. It, it's just a joke. It's, it's not a, it's not, uh, 
I don't think the politicians uh, really want to address the issue. They're afraid of, in my opinion, they're afraid of ticking off a, a voter. You know, it seems like a lot of the politicians just say whatever the, the potential voters want to hear rather than setting your standards and living up to them. Uh, it's it just uh, – I'm not taking anything away from the soldiers, the, the law enforcement professionals that are out there risking their lives, and many of them giving their lives on a daily basis to fight this scourge. But, uh, I mean, just look at it. It's not a true war. It's it's just semantics. Uh, there was It seems like there was no ever – real commitment from the U.S. government to go in. I mean, when you, when you got the government of Colombia, which is the number one country in the world for the production and distribution of cocaine, inviting you in, and we send two guys up there, what do you call that? Oh, put a Band-Aid on it? A joke? Right. It, it, let me real quick, when our agent Camarena got kidnapped in Mexico in 1984, you know, and we weren't getting cooperation. You know, I think it was President Reagan. You know what he did? He closed the border down between Mexico and the United States. I'll always remember, I think it was closed for one hour. That made a difference. Mexico started cooperating. Mm -hmm. To end on a, a note of optimism, Javier, you write, however, you say, we are the good guys and we will always win. Your final thoughts, sir. Yes. Final thoughts, we have to. We, we're going to do, we're going to write what evil is out there. We have to try. There's a lot of solutions out there. We're big on education. Uh, we cannot let these cartels win. We cannot let them do whatever they want. Steve? Emily, you know, um, Javier and I retired in 2013, 2014. We've been retired for a number of years now from DEA. But as I mentioned earlier, we're in our eighth year of, of this worldwide tour, and all we do is tell the truth about Pablo Escobar. We have videos that we use. We have photographs that we took. You know, we tell the true story. Um, and I, we've kind of coined a little phrase that just because we retire doesn't mean our oaths ever expire. So we took an oath to defend and support the Constitution of the United States and, and protect its citizens. And even in retirement, not looking to pat ourselves on the back, but we're trying to do what we can to still continue to get the message out there. We're not, we're not winning this by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, we're seeing how bad fentanyl is coming into the United States. And it just, every time you turn around, now they're talking about xylazine. Every time you turn around, people are, are sticking something into their bodies that were never meant to go in a human being's body. So, um, I guess it's just our little effort to continue to get the word out there. There's others that are doing as good, if not better than us. And um, all I can say is, is God bless our police and back the blue. Well, you may describe it as a little effort. I see you both as heroes. I speak for millions upon millions when I say thank you for your service. Thank you for never giving up. Thank you for honoring all of those law enforcement and elected officials and ordinary people who lost their lives on the war on drugs because of Pablo Escobar's horrendous, violent campaign. You two were boots on ground. You were at the forefront. And reading your story from your mouths and hearing your story today has been nothing short of an honor. Thank you for your service day in and day out, continued through retirement. And I always have a platform for you to, to amplify. You have a much bigger platform than I do, gentlemen, but I'm always here to support you as, as 
law enforcement and as fellow Americans, you absolutely have upheld and supported the Constitution. And really, it's been an honor to talk with you both today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Well said. Thank you. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.